how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. In the film Damascus Cover, a spy navigates the precarious terrain of love and survival during an undercover mission in Syria. The film stars Jonathan Rhys Myers, Olivia Thirlby, and John Hurt. Writer-director Daniel Zillick Burke discusses how to avoid a red herring in screenplays, breaking rules for low-budget filmmaking, making a book adaptation personal, the key to great value and looks from shooting overseas, and how to solve problems where you can't throw money at the problem. Finally, Burke discusses a touching final moment with actor John Hurt from The Elephant Man in 1984 before the actor passed away, not long after this film was made. Um, I, uh, this is my second film. Um, the first film I made as a director, uh, I, basically I had um, been producing, line producing and producing films um, over the years, um, many of them uncredited for a company called Trimark, and then which ultimately became Lionsgate. And I was sent a script, which was a sequel of a sequel of a sequel, believe it or not, of a Stephen King short story called Sometimes They Come Back. And I looked at the script, it was less than a million dollar budget. Um, and I said, I, I just, I just don't want to do this. You know, I don't know, no, I don't want to do it. And the executive at the studio said, who was a very good friend of mine, said, look, you know, I know you want to direct. Maybe this is your chance. I'll let you direct it. I mean, I won't pay you. I'll just pay you your regular producer fee. But if you want to direct it, um, you can direct it. So that was my my introduction to to directing. And what I learned on that film, which was a I mean, it was a blast to make it. It was a, basically a kind of like the thing. It took place in Antarctica in a in a research facility, and we shot it on a stage in Santa Clarita near Los Angeles. Um, you know, it had a limited cast, and 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 it was in basically one location. But I could not change the script. I mean, they just would not let me change the script. And that was a big frustration for me. So what I learned from that film, among other things, is uh, how important the script was, which, of course, I knew before, but never kind of in the same way when you're trying to direct. Uh, and so I decided I would you know, not do another film until I could find something that I was very personally attached to and probably something that I wrote. So I put the word out for uh, material, and I got um, this book called The Damascus Cover, which was written by Howard Kaplan, which had been a bestseller um, in 1977. Uh, and I read it, and what I found in the book um, 
were the elements on the spine of what I needed to write an adapted screenplay. Um, and that was, I was very interested in the Middle East, um, very interested in, and, and I love the spy genre, and I liked the, the, how that was set up, and I, and I really liked the ending. Um, because one of the things that's always disturbed me as an audience goer of thrillers is that, you know, nine times out of ten, you sit there and you kill yourself trying to figure out all the twists and turns. And when you get to the end, the ending is a big disappointment. You know, it's like, you know, who's the, who's the mole? It's the guy in the blue shirt in the corner. You know, and you're like, who's that? Right? You know, it's like, I, it's usually something that's, that's a little disappointing. And the thing about the book was the ending was very organic. And, you know, the question that he was asking was, who is the angel? And when you find out who the angel is, I mean, and I've shown the film to a lot of people, it's generally a big surprise. But in retrospect, so it's a surprise, but it's organic. And in retrospect, when you think through the movie, it was inevitable and not something, you know, uh, not a red herring. Uh, so um, I really like that. And that, that's what drew me to, to uh, the book. And then I added in stuff that was very personal for me which is I moved it up to um, the time of the Berlin Wall, which is 89, because I wanted to create some hope um, in the Middle East, you know, a possibility of some change in the Middle East that would be surprising and unexpected, like the wall falling down. Um, and then I added the, the theme of children, since I had had a child recently, uh, and I, I like this idea that, that, you know, the children, maybe that will cause us to make a change because we don't want our kids to have to keep doing the same thing that we've done. Um, so... I, there were a lot of elements in the film which I found very personally attractive, um, and then then I wrote the script. Uh, the, the script, the novel, are, are quite different from one another. Um, is there a point where it's so different you want to call it something else, or does it kind of help to have that novel to base it on, as far as either getting the movie made or knowing what the story is? Well, I think that, um, uh, and, and I know your 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 uh, podcast is about the creative process a little bit. The, the, there's no doubt, and, and Howard Kaplan knew that um, when we had our first meeting, we actually discussed this. Each version or generation of the process of making a film is a different animal, basically. So you have the novel, and then you have the script. And the script is, I mean, he understood it. He didn't even look at drafts for quite a long time. The script is a completely different thing, right? It's a, it's, it doesn't have to be uh, a replay of the novel. In fact, I think it probably shouldn't. Um, you really want to uh, open it up and, and, and go wherever you want using the spine of the novel, but not maybe the flesh to, to, to keep that. Um, and, and so then, and, and by the way, it keeps going because then you, you go to the shoot and you have to deal the shoot is a different movie too, because now you're dealing with the actual actors, right? You're not your imagination anymore, actual locations and actual limitations of the budget and time. So what you shoot on the, on the, on the, during the shooting is also a completely different animal. And then when you're in the editing room, it happens again because you have to deal with, you know, not what you wanted to shoot, but what you actually got on film. I mean, you, it's just if it's not there, it's not there. So you have to, again, open up your mind to another process of, of actually editing the movie. And it's very interesting. So I, I don't, to answer your question, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's, I think it is different than the novel in a way that it should be, but not so much so that it's a totally different thing because it's not. I mean, it's, it's Howard's characters. It's Howard's, you know, basic structure. Um, I mean, I just layered in a bunch of things um, to make it mine, but it's still very much um, based on that novel. Um, so I, I yeah, definitely wouldn't want to not be associated with it. Plus, one, I mean, it is it is a novel that was a bestseller in 77, um, so it definitely, it's not a bad thing for marketing purposes. Um, but it, I think it would be dishonest to, to call it something else um, because it, just, it, just, it is something that's based on that novel. 
So tell, I'm always interested in, in um, the ongoing motivation uh, to, to be a filmmaker. I, I've spoken with like Ben Younger, for example, who made a movie, and it was about a 10-year gap between his second film. He kind of went another route and came back. Were you always working around film, or what were you kind of doing between these two movies? I, I um, uh, ended up working for, dur- during the second Intifada in the Middle East, um, I ended up uh, trying to help um, the Israeli consulate um, bring celebrities to Israel, interestingly. Uh, and it was a very difficult job at that time. Uh, and I, that, I took some time off to do that. And we ultimately had one big trip, which was Christopher Reeve. Um, went to Israel, which was kind of interesting because he couldn't even move his head. Um, and that, you know, during that time, I also began to think about wanting to do something in the Middle East, um, something hopeful, uh, and something, you know, that we, we play with, I mean, I, 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 you know, I would call this, you know, my attempt to do kind of a 60s classic spy thriller. Um, and so, you know, I like that genre, so I wanted to layer that in. Um, but I think what I was doing in the middle actually did have a big influence on me. I also like the idea of kind of playing with stereotypes of the 60s, you know, kind of the, the classic tropes, and then trying to try and play them against each other, like in the sense that, you know, there's good versus evil. I mean, when Olivia Thrillby first read the script, she said, uh, you know, I didn't want to do it when I first started the first couple of scenes because it looked like she was just going to be this black and white character. And then I found out that she had this hidden story. Um, and I think it's probably the same for the general. You know, you find out he's not, you know, this is not all bad, you know, all bad Middle East, char- you know, uh, Middle East characters and all good Israeli characters. I think it's hopefully when you get to the end of the movie, you realize that it's more nuanced than that. So I, I, I was trying to get to that, um, aside from the theme of children um, and, the, you know, this idea that, uh, you know, if we love our children so much, maybe we'll take a risk and make a change. As you know, Every film is a miracle, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's really, really difficult today to get a feature film made. Um, very, very hard. So just to accomplish that, um, in, in my mind, is a miracle. Um, if you make a film that you're happy with, it's a second miracle. And if you get released, it's a third miracle. And if it makes any money, it's a fourth miracle, right? So it's, you're really, you're really uh, pushing it when you, you know, yeah, filmmakers are a, a, a last of a dying breed, actually. You know, we're... Um, definitely, uh, you know, not playing the odds, let's say. So how did you kind of first get involved with this project? Did you read the book, come up with the idea? Did you start with a, a co-writer? Where did you first get involved with this book and, and movie? What, what a, a mutual friend of Howard uh, and mine um, recommended that I read the book. She knew that I was looking for material to direct after my first film. Um, and so she said, you know, look, there's this book. It's, you know, no one's read it in a while. It's an old book, but it's really, really good. And it's, it's, you know, in the area you want, it's a spy thriller, you know, why don't you read it? So she introduced me to Howard. I read the book and immediately optioned it and then started the process of, uh, writing screenplays. I wrote a series of drafts and then, um, after a bunch of false starts, actually, we, uh, got it made as a UK production which gave us uh, a tax break on all the money we spent in the U.K., which is where we did the post-production. Um, and, and in that process, I brought on a uh, co-writer for a couple of drafts named Samantha Newton, uh, and we wrote a couple drafts together. It was She helped me a great deal on the script. Uh, and then I wrote another couple of drafts on my own before we shot it. I think we, I mean, it must have gone through 25 drafts. I mean, it was many, many drafts. 
What was kind of your experience? A lot, a lot of filmmakers are kind of stuck in the, you know, need to shoot in New York or L.A. What was your experience like over there, and how was it easier for you and, and things like that? Well, first of all, it's a very low-budget film. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we had to do, um, in, you know, one of, you know uh, it would be great to shoot the film here, of course. Uh, my family's here. And, um, you know, there's great crews and facilities. But there were a couple things that I needed. I mean, first, I needed to shoot it in a place where I could get a lot of value for the couple of million bucks that we had. Uh, and um, I also needed a look. So I needed, I mean, most of it, ta- you know, it takes place in Syria, most of it. Um, so we looked at a number of places. Morocco is spectacular for the look and for the cost. Um, it, is, it is definitely a much cheaper place to shoot. Um, and, they ha- and Casablanca, which is a very rough and tumble city, uh, was a really good match for Damascus. Um, so we had a lot of like, you know, uh, alleyways and kind of broken down buildings. And, you know, we didn't have to um, do as much work as we would have done here to recreate from whole cloth um, the locations and the look. It was, it was basically there. So we were shooting. I mean, you know, we would go to a warehouse that would be filled with junk and we would just shoot in the junk. Right. You know, whereas I didn't have to pay someone to put junk in there. It was already there. Uh, so, yeah, we. Um, Morocco was required. I mean, there were some challenges there, though, because they obviously don't shoot at the speed. Um, there were disappointments sometimes. You know, we would go to a place and they would, you know, suddenly raise their price, double their price at the last minute, and we'd have to kind of move to a different place because we didn't have the money. Um, I mean, there were there were definite challenges, but at the end of the day, we got a great value there and we got a great look. Were there like was it verbal agreements or something? Is that how they were able to do that, or it was just a totally different ball game over there? I would say, I would say, um, I think the answer is a totally different ball game. I mean, literally, you know, yeah. I mean, you, yeah, they had agreements. They probably had written agreements. It doesn't, you know, if now you're ready to shoot. The price goes up. Maybe you know, it's something possibly. It's it's a little rough and t- it's a little more rough and tumble. Um, but you know, you get used to that. I mean, and that's part of the. You know, you just kind of make it work. Um, you know, when you're, you know, you just make it work. I, and the thing is, on a film like this, on bigger films, you could solve things with money. You know, if something happens, you just basically pour money on the problem. We didn't have any money. So we were always underfunded. I mean, we were, you know, someone on a prior call asked me, um, you know, if you had more money, what was the first thing you would have done? I said, well, we probably could have served better food. You know, I mean, we were, we were, we were on the soup diet for a while, you know? So, so yeah, I mean, we were very, Threadbare, um, uh, threadworn. We, you know, look. I, I think the idea is you try and get as much as you can on the screen, um, and that means that people were flying coach instead of business class, and you know maybe the meals weren't so good, and we didn't have the security on the set that we should have probably had, uh, and you know I hired people who had maybe less experience in the, to give them the opportunity rather than having to pay them uh, a giant salary. You know, the DP, who I think did an amazing job, we wanted, uh, there's a, a female, first-time female DP named Chloe Thompson, who, you know, we didn't want to do a flat television look, um, which obviously is better for, I mean, we broke all the rules when it comes to low-budget filmmaking. You know, generally, you, you know, you, you light the whole room so the actors can go wherever they want and you can shoot quickly. Um, we didn't do that. I mean, we really had, we wanted more of a rich kind of classic look. Um, you know, it's not shot in one location like it should be, you know, with two people breaking, you know, someone trying to break into a house in a horror film or one guy driving around in a car um, on a speakerphone. You know, we, we, you know, we basically have tons of locations and lots and lots of actors. 
uh, and, you know, just basically tried to cut back on stuff you can't see. Uh, and I think we succeeded in that. You know, I think this is not the type of genre that I, I can't think of a low, low uh, of a low budget film that's shot that's a, a thriller, a spy thriller. I mean, they're all much bigger budgets than us because this. I mean, this is ridiculous. This breaks these rules, uh, and we, you know, we paid for it. We paid for it at the craft service table. So, so what advice? I mean, things are changing rapidly. Um, you know, as far as young people who want to make their own films, that kind of thing. What advice do you have for? Or what's, uh, I guess, what's legal, perhaps, maybe with some guerrilla filmmaking. I mean, people can shoot almost like a 4K movie on an iPhone now. Uh, obviously not to, to this, but do you, do you have any advice for that, that are trying to get those movies made? When do they actually need a permit and things like that if they're really just starting out? We went, I mean, I look, I, I don't know, again, this is a public podcast. I mean, you know, I, I don't think we broke rules in Morocco so much. Film business has always been in the process of uh, change, you know, whether it's from uh, silent films to talkies or color, you know, black and white to color. And I think we're in another transition now. And uh, what's happening now, I think, is that the television uh, has very much affected uh, 90-minute feature film, not only how how things are delivered and the fact that people are streaming, um, but also uh, how they're used to getting their stories. Um, and so, you know, now I think you have to introduce the main character much more quickly, uh, and that's very difficult. And one of the reasons why I think the uh, sequels and remakes are succeeding at the box office. Um, in a film like this, you have to basically introduce the main character in a couple of minutes uh, because you need to get on to the plotting of a, of a thriller. And, and I think that that, for younger filmmakers, I think they have to look at uh, I mean, one of the things is, uh, you know, you look at any of these older movies and they're cut much more quickly. Um, so we're becoming less, we're becoming very impatient, um, except for like on television, like on Breaking Bad, you can take a whole season to introduce a character or even multiple seasons, whereas you don't have that luxury in a, in a feature film. So as far as to, to new filmmakers, I think they have to look at, I'm not sure about the future of the 90-minute independent film. Um, I think there always will be film festivals. Uh, I, I think, and I, you know, as I've said, I think that even distribution now is a miracle. Uh, to be distributed in a movie theater is very, very difficult because it costs so much um, to be released. And there's co- so much competition from these giant films that the smaller films are kind of getting lost. So to the new, and, and also at the same time, because I do have a young daughter, there's enormous interest in the millennial generation in uh, telling stories uh, and telling stories through film. So I think there is a, and there's a demand for it. I mean, there's still a huge demand. So it's more about the process and the, the, the delivery of these stories. So at this point, that's why I think YouTube is so popular, uh, because it is a, a way for people to uh, get their stories through. Um, anyway, that, I think as far as uh, new filmmakers, I think, you know, you do what you got to do to get your film done. And then now you have to find a way to get it to your audience. And there are ways to do it and maybe very different than the ways that, that we grew up with. Um, they're going to be more uh, of a streaming method and, and that's okay. You know, and it's really about adapting to the new technology. So when you're developing this character, uh, either like what was your pitch like for Jonathan Reese Myers or how did he get involved with this project? Johnny, okay, the, the, the pitch to Johnny, Johnny got involved. He read the script. We actually had another actor that was going to do it. Uh, and then uh, a few, literally, uh, like a month before shooting, um, dropped out because he got a giant television series. 
Uh, and so we sent the script to Johnny, who overnight read it and said he wanted to do it. Um, the thing that, in talking to Johnny about the character and, and, and what this is, is it is not James Bond. I mean, that was the whole thing that appealed to us, was that it, it wasn't a guy who, you know, was the, a superhuman um, in any way. Uh, he was he was a very flawed guy with lots of problems and, um, you know, not really sure what he was doing all the time. And somebody who was basically probably even growing out of the spy business. Um, because, you know, in the spy business, everything is a need-to-know basis. Um, and that works for really young men, right, where people just say, you know, go take that hill, and you just believe the general, you know, the thinks that it's worth a life, right? But um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, the thing that Johnny, that appealed to Johnny and to me was this is a guy who is probably aging out a little bit and doesn't want doesn't, to, doesn't necessarily believe that the bosses are, that, that are, are being, you know, it's worth anyone's life. Um, so this is, it's a very different uh, character um, and, and a complicated character. And what we, what we found we had to do, which is kind of interesting, um, you know, this idea that you have to introduce the character really quickly is why we put the voiceover at the beginning of the movie, because we just didn't have the time. I mean, I had all kinds of scenes that are no longer in the movie, a backstory of the main character. And we, you know, we really needed to get on with it. Right. So that's why we added the, the voiceover, which is kind of interesting. Like, you know, when, when George Lucas did the original Star Wars, he showed it to all his buddies. You know, they had their little screening of, you know, Lucas and Spielberg. And they all said, look, you know, and they asked him, like, explain to us what this story is about the rebels and the empire and all that. And he would go on and on about explaining it. And they said, well, you should just put that at the front of the film, right? Just put the text at the front of the film. Because we, we didn't get that, right? I mean, you know, by the time we were in the middle of the movie, we started to figure it out, but that was too late. So that's why, you know, at the beginning of Star Wars, they have that crawl which basically just very simply describes, you know, A, B, C, this is what's happening. And essentially that's what we did with the voiceover um, is to say, okay, this is who I am. This is my problems. And okay, let's start the movie. You know, within that respect of, you know, films are changing, especially the 90, 90 minute smaller budget movies. Um, is that changing the way that you read or write, you know, the first 10 pages of your screenplay, you have to get in faster. How does that kind of change that aspect? It, it uh, totally does. I mean, I think that, uh, and again, it depends on the genre, right? I mean, this, uh, some of the genres are, are easier than others, but when you have, I mean, one of the hardest genres is the thriller genre because it's, it's heavy in character and heavy in plot. Um, you know, you can do a love story, which is not that plotty, but much heavier in character. But, you know, it's, 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 it, is, it definitely affects how I uh, uh, write because you really do need to, move on. I mean, the audience is very impatient now. People really, I mean, you sit down and you watch some of these older pictures from the 60s and 70s, and they're like glacial speed. I mean, you're wondering how in the world, I mean, it's interesting. I showed my daughter one of my favorite scenes in The Godfather, which is, you know, you remember the scene where Michael goes to kill um, to kill the guy and, and he has the gun in the bathroom, right? Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, basically there's an entire scene of him just sitting there eating you know, and they're looking at each other, and then he goes in the bathroom, and he comes out. My daughter's like, why doesn't she just walk in there and shoot him? I mean, what is all this? It just goes on forever, right? And I, to me, I know every shot, right? I mean, I think it's just a brilliant scene. But, but to the new group, they just are like, this guy should just walk in the, 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 the restaurant, pull a gun out, and shoot the guy, and walk out with all this cutting and looking and everything. So we, we, things are different. I mean, and I think as filmmakers, we have to understand. And also, people have gotten very, very smart about film. 
They are very, I mean, we may not be great at reading books, but boy, we can watch a sequence. I mean, Quentin Tarantino has showed us that you can put the beginning in the middle and the middle in the end and the, and the beginning at the, at, at the end. And, and people put the film together. I mean, we're extremely literate when it comes to visual images. So people get it. I mean, they get it. You don't need to, you know, they get it. Uh, and the other thing I've learned, too, is that they don't listen all that much. Um, they're more about visual. So, like, uh, you know, in a, in a picture like this, you know, I tried at different points, you know, you say the name of the character, and nobody remembers the name of the character. That's another big lesson from this for me, is that, you know, they may remember the general, but they don't remember the general's name. Or they'll remember the guy, the bad guy with the mustache kind of thing, but they won't remember his name. So if you have a scene where someone refers to a character that's not in the scene, they're not going to maybe understand or remember what you're talking about. So that's another big lesson I would pass on to uh, filmmakers is that, you know, don't names are not helpful. <laughs> they just, you know, people do not remember who Sam is. Um, they may remember the, you know, the, the little guy or something, you know, they may remember a visual reference to him, but they will not remember his name. Um, so, you know, basically in cutting this, I just took out as many names as I could because it just people didn't get it. That's crazy how much things are changing. When you're talking about The Godfather, I was thinking about the old Hitchcock movies where it's very slow, but then, you know, Tarantino's one of the last ones to get away with it with, like, Inglorious Bastards, but you know something's coming, but there's this tension that's there and everything. No, it's really hard. I mean, the cutting styles, the editing style, I mean, the, the, the script styles, I mean, things are, you really have to move. Uh, there's a lot of pressure um, to keep things going. Uh, and that's, it's changed. I mean, it's just, and, and you don't realize until you watch one of these older films, <laughs> then you're just slapped in the face by, oh my God, how did I sit through this and think it was so good? Well, thank you for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to say about the film or uh, anything else, other future projects you're working on? Well, I am, I am working on some future things. Um, I, I'm very focused on this at the moment. Uh, we are going to be released in Los Angeles on the 20th and in other cities uh, on the 27th. And then we're going to open up in England on the third. Um, I think that the, the point I would like to make, though, is, is that, you know, we um, uh, basically, you know, this is I, I'm being I, I want to try and discourage uh, this film to be compared with James Bond. Um, and that was certainly not our attempt. And much more with the classic spy thrillers of the 60s uh, with a modern twist and ultimately, you know, hopeful and not, uh, you know, something about. Um, maybe some possibility for some improvement in the Middle East is basically that, that my, was my motivation for making the film. Uh, I think this was John Hurt's last movie. At least it's listed that way. People know him from The Elephant Man. And Is there any uh, story on set or just conversation you guys shared kind of in his final days? Yeah, I have a, an amazing story, actually. Yeah, I have an amazing story. When, when we first sent him the script, um, we were out. I was out uh, looking for locations because, as I said, I mean there are like you know a hundred locations in this movie. So we spent two months actually looking for locations. So while we were hunting for locations and scouting them, um, I got a call from John Hurt saying he'd read the script, but he was really sorry because he didn't feel he could do the movie. Uh, and I asked him why, and he said, "Well, when I look at when I read it, I really feel that my character is not resolved correctly." And I said, well, what would you like me? I mean, of course, I wanted to be in the movie, right? So what is it that you'd like me to do? He goes, I have absolutely no idea. He said, I can just tell you my instinct tells me that the character is unresolved and not, not resolved correctly. Um, and if you, by the way, if you do find a way, and you don't have to touch it, it's your script, your, your movie, you know, you do what you want. But it, if you do decide to um, 
change the ending a little or, you know, complete my character more, I would be interested in reading it again. So uh, I then spent the next week thinking about it. And it's amazing to me because um, when you see the movie, he's so he was not in the last scene originally. And when you see the movie now, it looks like how could he not be in the last scene? I mean, how would you do it otherwise? Right. Um, So it basically, you know, in a couple of days, I wrote um, uh, another scene for him, which is now the last scene of the movie and sent it to him. And he immediately said, I'm in. So, I mean, his instincts were amazing. I mean, he dramatically improved the picture, which, by the way, is my method for all the people involved in the movie, right? I think in my mind, and I know you're, you're into this, you know, how, how you make things. A director is, is a conductor of a symphony but doesn't play any instruments. Um, and so I think that, that what I tried to do with everybody is you try and get everyone to come. I mean, you get to decide what's played, and how fast it's played, and, and you know, you definitely get the final say on what's in the movie. But you look to each key uh, um, crew member and each actor to bring their, you know, advice. And their, their you know, it's like a private marriage, I think, uh, in that each one of them can say anything inside that marriage. Um, and you, you, know, you want them to say, no, 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 I want to do this. I want to do that. What do you think about that? So, I mean, John Hurt is a great example of that. I mean, that's what you want from artists is you want them to bring their A-game to help you. And then, of course, at the end of the day, it's, a, it's a, you know, everybody gets credit for it. But um, that is, as a director, I think that would be my recommendation to your younger directors is that, you know, it really is not, I don't agree with the auteur system where the director knows everything and basically, you know, can kind of a one-man band kind of thing. It is not that. Um, all the way to the guy who makes the poster, um, you need to um, have a kind of a collaboration and you want people to feel that they can contribute what they're good at, which is hopefully much better than the director can do himself. Otherwise, he shouldn't be hiring that person. I mean, I would have no idea how to shoot a movie as a DP. No idea. Um, you know, so you try and hire people that really can bring themselves to it. And then just like in this John Hurt story, he's like, you know, and the actors become an expert on their character more than anybody else, Right. Uh, and, of course, you have the overall perspective, which no one else has as the director, and especially if you've written the script, to, to kind of make sure you don't go off the rails because um, you see the big picture. But you want to encourage John, people like John Hurt to say, hey, you know, I think this could be much better, and I think you need to, to, to try harder to do it, to, to do something else. And I think that's the – hopefully, you know, it makes, it makes for a much, much better movie for everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter where you also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.